Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and our hot and humid Azores High Edition. And this time we have a display of all the musical colours from UK not jazz outfit Matters Unknown. Professor Ashlyn Kelleher comes to call out the contemporary design process, and we have some radio poetry from Los Angeles based poet DJ Eve B. Golden. But we start with this here music. Let's not call it jazz, suggests our guest this time, Johnny Enser of His New Music. Enser is the trumpeter in Nubian Twist, one of the progressive acts that makes up what other people might call the new British jazz scene, although Mojo magazine more carefully marks Nubian Twist down as an assemblage of diasporic styles. Separated from his main outlet during the recent air perturbations, Ensa has been preparing work for a solo project, Matters Unknown, and when he spoke to Culturefile, was even getting on his best duds for a live gig with Matters Unknown. Oh, it's a nightmare, mate. Everything didn't work during the pandemic. No part, no part of my career didn't falter and almost fail. Or my mental health, to be honest. Everything basically came to a stop. The teaching and the music and and positivity and expression. Everything just went. I actually got a gig tonight playing with a band called The Brass Roots. It's a band that's um, led by this great trombonist called Jerome. And yeah, just playing at some some venue in Gypsy Hill in South London. And then on Thursday this week, yeah, first gig back with Matters, my new project. First gig, in fact, in front of a live audience at Costa del Tottenham in Tottenham. Nubian Twist, the band that I play with, will be doing a 50-date tour throughout Europe and UK from the halfway through September until... Um, yeah, mid-November, so two months on the road. My references musically, my biggest reference is Donald Byrd, who's my biggest influence as a trumpet player, as a producer and as a mentor. That's, that's really what I'm fighting to try and try and recognise and be inspired by. He, he rode every scene from the from bebop era right until late disco and I would say that he excelled at all of them he definitely persisted and managed to always be at the cutting edge of whatever those genres were it's entirely political jazz is a term that that was essentially attributed to black music coming out in the 20s, from the 1890s until the 1950s. Black American music specifically at that time. The reality is that that wasn't a term that any of those musicians ever chose to give to themselves. And something that I believe that we should be able to have control over as artists is how we brand ourselves rather than just getting lumped into some sort of sort of lazy category. And where I place my project is as, yeah, 
British, cutting edge British contemporary music. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to play bebop. I'm not trying to play trad jazz. I love playing those styles of music as well. But this isn't, um, this isn't, I'm I'm not trying to do a pastiche with this project. You know what I mean? I haven't ever tried religiously to sit down and be like, okay, it's that time I have to write a tune. The majority of my music has come out of places in between spaces. Whenever I'm walking around, I'll always have my dictaphone on my phone ready. And that's where the tunes come out. It follows my cadence of my mental health from positive to negative. It follows my times of inspiration, of love. Blindspot and Arju are both recorded at Henwood Studios with the six-piece band, which includes Viva Umsamang, my partner who plays trombone, who's just recently debuted a project called Collectiva. It also includes Rosie Turton on trombone from, you know, Rosie Turton. You need to go check her out as an individual artist under her own name. She's definitely at the absolute cutting edge of British improvisers. I don't know many people who can do what she can do. single that's going to come out in late August. This tune is deeply inspired from the time that I spent collaborating with Molatu Estarque with Nubian Twist. He's been an influence for me since I was 17, 18 years old. When I first arrived in Manchester, I went straight to Piccadilly Records and bought whatever I could afford. And one of those records was a Molatu Estarque record, one of the Ethiopics sort of records. His track Yakutet just really stuck with me. The bass line, the modality, the rhythms... And I've never really been able to shake that inspiration. And so Arju is big, big reference to that. The second single is called Blind Spot, and that features the um, traditional Senegalese sabah set as played by Mohamed Gai. So I wrote this tune and he basically came and filled in some of the best gaps that I've I've ever heard. He prepared something really monstrous for it and it's so beautiful and a big part of that culture is about presenting your music as a spiritual language and using it as a power to heal the soul and all all of the people around you. And I can't believe in anything stronger than that personally. Trying to heal through music is everything I've ever wished to do. Johnny Inser there on his new act, Matters Unknown, but you can find their first single, A Beginning, by searching for Matters A Beginning in all the places you'd expect. Long story, at Matters Unknown is good for Instagram. 
It's a must-have app. It won't so much change your life as usher you through the gates of a brand new one to a life where all your problems have been datafied out of existence. All you've left to do is... Well, let's worry about that bit later. For our regular tech soothsayer, Professor Ashling Kelleher, the drawbacks in this approach seem particularly striking in the burgeoning area of femtech, the ever-growing catalogue of technologies that like to see women's health and women's experiences more generally as a market with huge potential, that is, as a series of problems to be solved. I think there's this idea of... Um this theory of solutionism that for every problem there is a you know a solution that uh, silicon valley or technology in general can solve and instead i think there's a little bit of pushback right now to the idea that it's not that we are all like broken bodies and in particular women but rather we have autonomy over our bodies and we can decide what is important about those and what is important to track and what is important to reflect on and it's not necessarily this like sterile kind of health focused idea but also that it has an emotional component it has a psychological component and it has a component that is completely personal and whether or not that you want to use why would a device that tracks that in some way and you share it with a third party that that's just kind of assumed to be like a healthy way of doing things this is problematic to me but this is um it's something that sort of it, it does exist in design in general that there is a way of thinking about anything that the designer faces as a problem which must be solved. That is a, the essential idea is that design is going to bring you towards a you know an optimal solution, and I think that 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 brings us to this idea of like okay well then what is what is the problem and is it really a problem and how is it that an app or a technology or a some sort of a sensor or device is going to fix that and that's a big kind of socio-technical issue for us to consider is that the assumption that technology can solve all ills when we might not decide that that's an ill at all but rather just a very basic component of the human condition that can be discussed and thought about in a different way. So I think we see this great, even in, in the popular press, we're seeing this emergence of higher levels of discussion about complex human issues and particularly complex issues that uh, women or women identifying people experience such as menopause or fertility issues or, you know, just the menstruation or anything like that, that if we can kind of bring them into normal common discourse in a way that they're not shrouded in secrecy or kind of some like weird way of like pretending that they don't exist, that they can become normalized in a way that doesn't need a technological solution to solve for you individually, but rather requires a societal innovation in how we consider them. But in a way, the technology is part of the societal innovation, isn't it? With the, with the rise of period tracking, for instance, there's a sort of destigmatization around uh, women's health experience that, that is inherent in the popularity of the technology, even if the technology has a sort of problemist uh, kind of approach. Yeah, I think there's, there's pros and cons for that. So some is that, yes, it comes into the fore that like, okay, we can now, you know, we can better track the, your period, for example, in a way that might be extremely useful for, for example, for teenagers so that they know how to prepare to go to school or anything like that in the advent of their period. But it can also mean that you're like, if you don't use these technologies, 
you know, particularly in the advent of parenting or something like that, then you are a bad person. You're a bad parent because you're not taking advantage of these things. And I think that's one way that consumerism sells us on these technologies. Here's the solution. If you don't use them, you're deliberately avoiding them or ignoring them. And that means that you're bad. So it's performative in some ways that you're a performing parenting. You're performing being, uh, you know, an, an idealized woman, for example, by having and using and performing with these technologies. So I think there's a... There's a pro and con to that that's quite nuanced, Luke. So how has the design community began to to track? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I hesitate to say the word problems, but how has the design community begun to approach these uh, the difficulties that you're talking about, the shortcomings you're talking about? Yeah, I think there's a different, couple of different ways. So one is like even the idea of uh, theorist and, and writer Donna Haraway has talked about this idea of troubling design. And I, I think this is a really intriguing way of mentioning it. The idea of design being solution-focused with, you know, a fairly linear progression from this is a problem, we'll create this, now the problem is solved, there we go to troubling the idea of is a designed product the appropriate thing to solve this perhaps it's legislation perhaps it's a a cultural idea that our norm that must be challenged and that's one way i think that some of uh, particularly like feminist design or feminist technology has begun to think about uh, and kind of categorize the idea of design being so generalizable that it's like here's a solution that's for everyone and beginning to think a bit more about like there's something deeply personal about some of these things as well and how might design either be adaptive to that or alternatively be completely rejected as being like that's not something that we need to think about at all. Theorist and commentator John Berger, he talks about this lovely phrase that there's another way of telling. And that's really interesting when you realize like what voices are not being listened to or what voices are not being heard. And like, what is another way of telling about this experience, whether, you know, it happens here in the United States where you're like, well, let's explain the experience of slavery from a African-American perspective as opposed to from a white perspective, which has been taught primarily in schools. So I think this idea of thinking about what is another way of telling, what is a way of troubling this design? So we begin to think about the types of, whether it could be the cars that are created, the fashion that we see. So I think there is a sense of, yes, there is another way of telling. And perhaps that is, you know, not to be too hipster about it, like a bespoke design, but there is a way that different types of designs, whether they're apps or or technologies or services, can speak to a much broader population than the people that are creating them. This is what your research is looking at. In some ways. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I... um, I'm afforded the time and the opportunity and I work very closely with two of my colleagues, Laura Devendorf, who's in the University of Colorado and Christina Anderson in the University of Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And we have had this opportunity to uh, think deeply about the material world. Both of my colleagues are people who work very closely with actual material, Laura being a, a weaver and Christina also. And so for us, we are involved in creating this idea of what we call design memoirs. And so the same way that a memoir that we're more familiar with is like kind of a a written um, reflection on specific aspects of your life, for us, design memoirs are an embodied way 
of thinking about specific aspects of your life and sharing them. And in this case, it's deeply personal and intimate in a way that perhaps typical consumer products are not specifically like that. They're designed to be generalizable and not specific to the conditions of your life. I mean, recently we spoke about our work at one of our primary conferences. We have this huge conference every year on on, um, computer-human interaction. And one of the questions we were asked, we're like, what are the implications for design from your work? And I got to answer, absolutely zero. Like, we don't think you should replicate this in any way, shape or form. But that is this essence in some ways that there's typical scientific research is about reproducibility. It's about applicability in different settings. And we're like, that's not the totality of our experience with computation. It's not our totality of our experience with technology. We can also use, use it as a reflective and a reflexive mechanism. And this is something that worked for us. And one of the ways, rather than talk about, well, what are the applications of this, is rather we took the things that we each individually made, whether it was pockets or metals or uh, an exoskeleton, and kind of we use this way of refractively comparing them back and forth between one another. And so trying to use ideas from kind of the theoretical literature to think about what the significance and meaning was of these objects as opposed to this is something that either has commercial value or should be replicated by society because it has a meaning. I mean I guess that's exactly what a university should do but also the sort of thing that uh, universities can't do because increasingly I mean you know it happens it happens here and you know America invented it you are asked for outputs you're expected that startups will happen on your campus or the seeds will be sown there. No, that makes total sense. You know, it's, it's it's rather even like in my own diffractive life, there is the idea of my serious research in. I run a lab on interactive neurorehabilitation, which makes sense to funding agencies. And they're like, eh, and what? This feminist exoskeleton metal business? What is that? And I'm like, well, you can find meaning in all of these things. And actually, I don't think I could do the kind of work I do in the neurorehabilitation work I do without this other lens within which I kind of either examine my own life or my own experience and existence, you know, within this high tech field, you know, we see within higher education in general, as it moves along, is it supposed to be just a pipeline into the job market? Or is it, you know, is it supposed to be this like wonderful period where you get some time to think about broader ideas in general to move you on to the next stage in your life um, and I think that's both of those models are not ideal one model is very much like from 400 years ago when people had the you know the, the very entitled people had the opportunity to sit around and talk nonsense all day and the other is that it's you know basically this is the exact pipeline and you're, it's an apprenticeship model and then you're going to become like another cog in the machine. But there, I think there is this opportunity for examining broadly what human existence is and thinking about perhaps a technology could assist this or perhaps not. And I think that's the question that comes up is where are, you know, this idea of encountering like the ethics or the morality of a particular technology and when that should be encountered? And should that be encountered legislatively? What a profound experience it has been 
in the United States in particular, when certain individuals have been banned from certain social platforms. And the massive implication of that, of a corporate entity deciding that this particular individual or individuals are no longer able to use that as a mouthpiece. And the implications of that are are, are deep and wide. And why is it that we have given power to such entities? And is that correct? And there's a lot of ways to think about that. And I'm like, perhaps, is, is it in university that one should do that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's the question under sixty um, percent of news stories is uh, that these companies have ended up with controls that we didn't envisage and uh, didn't shape. And what are we going to do about that now? I don't know whether you can do it on a personal basis. I mean, a year ago, I deleted over a year ago all my social media for a whole variety of reasons, but mainly because I was very annoyed at the kind of the power we had given to these companies and also the impoverishing algorithmic control I think it's a it's a tricky one it's not like I mean we were joking earlier about like Spice Girl power like well if girls ruled world I'm like I don't know if it'd be any better because capitalism is what capitalism is but giving all this power to these social media companies is 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 tricky and problematic and I don't really have a solution for that. Professor Ashlyn Kelleher of Virginia Tech there on the problem with solutions. And finally on this week's Culture File Weekly, some radio poetry from Eve B. Golden. The Los Angeles-based poet, DJ and activist is creating some special pieces for Culture File this summer, the first of which we're going to hear now, and it's called Radio Haunting. This is Eve B. Golden. Hi. I am Eve, and I dream in black and white. I am an artist, organizer, and I am the co-founder of a nonprofit called the Herbal Mutual Aid Network, which brings free herbal and financial resources to black and trans individuals throughout the United States. I am currently based in Los Angeles, California. I am a DJ, a musician, But mainly, I am a writer, which I get from my mother, who spent most of my childhood encouraging me to imagine spaces I felt safe and special, spaces I could charge with my sense of wonder and my sense of curiosity. I enjoy poetry. I enjoy words and arranging words that linger. I am an arranger, a choreographer, an architect, a lingerer. Above all, I believe in the power of words 
and I believe in the spaces I write about. For example, I think a lot about the time it takes an apple to fall from a tree in my dream world. I spend a lot of time imagining sanctuaries I could keep my dear ones close in. The void and the mass, the structure and the flow of air between chambers. I strive to be that exact airflow. I am in a state of unending flux. I welcome change because it has been very kind to me. You see, when you spend so much time out of sync with your body and arrive to a mirror in your late 20s, looking how you wished, prayed, knew you would. You create more space for the child in you to breathe, to rearrange their self. I am proud to nod inwardly, to gloss this physicality with my childhood's blessing. Sometimes I have to take the time and thank myself and be kind to myself. I have to nod. Right now, to you, I am not a physical being. And when I join you here, I am a voice. I am music. I am static. I am noise. Like a phantom, I come bearing my history, my secrets, my prayers, my conundrums, my presence. I am here with you, but just until I am not. And while I am here, we are together. The mission is to fill and charge your atmosphere. The mission is to kiss the air around your head. I may never be physically with you. I may not ever know you, but for now, I am with you. I am your haunting.
That was Eve B. Golden with a piece of radio poetry called Radio Haunting. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more uncanny expansions in the Daily Culture File and podcast all week long and with the Culture File Weekly next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.